Acts chapter 18, and we'll be reading verses 12 through 17. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Thank you, Father, for this word. We pray that uh, as I uh, seek to uh, open uh, these pages, that your Holy Spirit would be the one that would uh, open our eyes apart from your illumination. We cannot understand, and so we pray that you would take the word, quicken it to our hearts, uh, bless us, and that we in turn would be a blessing to you as we respond uh, to the things that we uh, hear. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. One of the most amazing and to me disconcerting statements that were made by the Jewish leaders in the first century is printed in their bulletin there. It's, we have no king but Caesar. It's a pretty amazing statement. It comes from John 19, verse 15. And on the surface, it just doesn't seem like something that the Jews would say. At least my perception of the Jews in the past was they were so independent-minded, there's no way they're going to submit to anyone, uh, let alone to Caesar. But it just is not so. The moment mainstream Jews became licensed by the Roman Senate and agreed to get incorporated, become in a, um, uh, incorporated as their synagogues, there began a long line of compromises. Now, there were a minority within Judaism that absolutely refused to get this licensing and refused to get incorporated. Qumran community was one of the communities that refused that. But the majority of Israel really became a state church. They had uh, no problems with that. And this morning you're going to be getting a lot of history, and I think it's important history, important background to understand uh, the book of uh, Acts. But let me start just with a few questions. Did you realize that every high priest in the first century was appointed by Rome, high priest of the temple? That is quite a concession that the Jews made uh, to Rome. And, you know, there were a number of years where uh, Rome just allowed them to do their own thing, but there was at least 22 years in there where there was a turnover of 15 high priests. That's uh, one priest uh, lasting, you know, an average of one and a half years. That's quite a bit of turnover. Did you know that Rome had enormous influence in Israel's Sanhedrin, which would be equivalent to our denomination's General Assembly? Did you know that Rome's corporate law forbade Jews from proselytizing or converting Roman citizens? There could be the death penalty for that. They could convert anybody else that they wanted. Any pagan was free game, but they agreed to this. This was part of the deal. If you're going to get incorporated, you're not going to convert uh, any Roman uh, citizens. 
Uh, if they did it, they had to do it on the sly. And there were other ways in which Jews really were not free. They thought they were free, but they were not. And I think that parallels our modern church situation today because the corporate laws and IRS licensing uh, procedures and all of that really have a strong parallel to what went on in Rome with one exception, and that is that our Constitution guarantees that churches don't have to get licensed and don't have to uh, get incorporated. But over the past 50 years, over 90% of churches have voluntarily applied to the IRS for licensure have voluntarily gotten incorporated and voluntarily agreed not to talk about certain things that the IRS says that they may not preach on. Uh, lawyers have been very, very busy. Uh, they have voluntarily become state churches just like mainline Israel did. Now, it wasn't too many years ago. It was illegal in every state of the Union to get... Um, uh, incorporated. Uh, you just could not do that. And I think it's still illegal in Virginia. Uh, I'm not sure about that. But uh, as the cigarette ad uh, says, you've come a long way, baby. And my comment is it's not progress. It's a regress. And even though this passage that we just read does not say everything that could be said about um, uh, the issues of corporation, I think it does give us some very useful insights. We're going to look first of all at why it was that these Jews were so bold in verse 12. Now, it's obvious it's a misplaced boldness because they get themselves into trouble. But there was something that made the Jews boldly take Paul to the Roman court system in every city that he has been in. Why would they do that? Uh, Christians would never dare to take Jews to court system. Why is it the Jews over and over again did this uh, with the Christians? Uh, take a look at verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. They're obviously not thinking of themselves as a persecuted minority. Here they've got a united boldness. Why? Well, first of all, Judaism had been a religio licita, a licensed religion for centuries, and was therefore protected by Rome. Simeon Guterman says... The basis of the religio licita was the collegium licitum, when a group of individuals organized an association with some religious or practical end in view and obtained the necessary authorization of the state, they then constituted a collegium licitum. Judaism was a religio licita, or authorized religion, and its th synagogues, collegia licita, or authorized associations, in the western parts of the Roman Empire. Now, there's no doubt about it, there were some benefits that the Jews got in doing this. There were numerous times when Jews would be harassed or persecuted by population in a local area. All they had to do is go to the civil magistrate or go to a court and produce their papers, say, look, we have been licensed by Rome and the local magistrate had to do something about this or he would have gotten in trouble uh, with Caesar. So the Jews... We're having, they're used to having a great deal of protection. They gave up some liberties, but they were also protected by the state. Now, there are perks to slavery. Uh, there are. And in modern days, churches have had the same false sense of security when they have applied for the IRS 501c3 status. Now, if you look in the IRS documents, they say a church doesn't have to apply. The Constitution already guarantees that they're going to be tax-exempt. Uh, but if you apply, it guarantees your tax exemption. Uh, status. It's an extra measure of security. Point B says, 
Recently, their synagogues had become collegia licita, or corporations. And this was especially true in the western part of the empire. And so, in addition to getting licensed, they also got incorporated. And again, uh, Guterman's amazingly researched book says, Each synagogue was an institution in its own right, possessing without doubt all the attributes of a corporation or a collegian. And he proceeds to describe in detail um, all of the corporate procedures and what went, they went through to do that. So he points out Judaism. Um, when they were incorporated as a synagogue, they had the ability to own property. Uh, they had limited liability. Now, in a moment, we're going to be seeing this limited liability. It's not guaranteed. They're not going to get beaten, you know. So uh, a little bit flaky there. But they, they had those things. And lawyers go to churches and they say, you've got to get incorporated. You've got to apply for this status because it's going to give you benefits. Well, it's exactly the same benefits that the Jews got back then. Three benefits, basically. Uh, you can own property, buy and sell property without going through all the complex uh, situations of setting up a trust, which can be a hassle. Um, you can sue or be sued. I don't know how that's a benefit. Uh, but you can. And uh, thirdly, there's limited liability for the corporation's officers. And so those are the things that are, are promised to them. But those are siren calls that will lead churches into bondage. And we're going to be seeing today there really is a one-to-one -one correspondence between many modern incorporated churches and the incorporated synagogues of that day. Now, you would think that they would lose some of their boldness after what happened in Acts chapter uh, 18, verse 2. Uh, that was in Rome, a long ways away, but still, I would think that they would be a little bit nervous. If you look at verse 2, it says, And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. That was just a couple years ago in 49 A.D., and that illustrates, it gives hints at how privileges granted by the state can also be taken away by the state. Guterman points out how these Jews really had it good in Rome. Uh, they were licensed in Rome. Every synagogue in Rome was incorporated. You'd think that that would give them some protection, yet Caesar yanked those privileges when he got upset with them. What Caesar gives, he can take away. That's a principle we need to have firmly set in our minds. And yet these Jews seem to have an eternal optimism in the goodwill of civil government, just like modern churches do. Finally, Christianity did not have this license or this corporate status, and Judaism knew it. In some places, they were able to prove it. Now, if you look through the New Testament, you will not find a shred of evidence that any New Testament church ever applied for a license or ever got incorporated and certainly the early church said they would rather die than do so. There's plenty of evidence in the early church uh, to that. And so if you, you just have some hints of that, just take a look at verses 7 through 8 there. Paul's no longer welcome in the synagogue. So what does he do? He just goes next door and he starts up a church there. He didn't, he didn't ask the state for permission. He just starts it, right? And he has done this in city after city even when the government was persecuting them. But up to this time, for the most part, Rome was treating Christianity as just being a sect within uh, Judaism. And uh, a bureaucracy there was oblivious to the delicacies of differences in theological viewpoints until the Jews brought, city after city, brought this to the attention of the authorities. And they say, hey, they're not part of Judaism. We don't want to have anything to do with them. 
This was a situation that was going on. And to this day, enemies of the church have used 501c3 IRS rules and corporation laws as a club to bludgeon and beat conservatives into submission. Now, liberals seem to be able to get away with anything. You know, they can have politicians in there. They can endorse them. Black churches uh, seem to be able to get away with uh, a lot. But any conservative church that uh, starts to engage in legislation immediately, the ACLU and the Americans United for a Separation of Church and State tattletale to the IRS, and they say, hey, these guys are preaching on legislation. They're trying to influence, you know, on this homosexual bill or on this and uh, the other thing. And I've had a number of friends over the past years who have on more than one occasion had to defend themselves to preserve their state-granted 501c3 status. They shouldn't have gotten it in the first place. And they have, I think in every situation of my friends, there's others who have lost, but every situation they've won, but the emotional expenditure and the financial expenditure has been so awful that it's made them utterly useless in being salt and light. They shut their, they zip their lips. And I'm not going to bother quoting some of these people, but they've told me we simply can't do what the Bible commands us to do or we're going to be in trouble. Uh, they need to read the cautions given by Peter Kershaw in his book in Caesar's Grip. Any confidence such state churches have in the favor and protection of the state is a misplaced confidence. Okay, the second question I ask in the outlines is, why the sudden move of the Jews when Gallio becomes proconsul, especially if they didn't, hadn't done it earlier? Now, we don't know why they didn't uh, press this issue earlier in Corinth. Maybe they didn't think about it. Maybe uh, other Jews from other communities hadn't gathered and say, hey, we need to do something with, about Paul. Maybe the proconsul was not favorable. We're not told. But it does make sense why as soon as Gallio becomes the proconsul, they say, we've got to go. We've got to do something here. And uh, I give some in your outline. First of all, he was described by his contemporaries as very easy to get along with, very amiable. And you might think, well, that would make him amiable to Paul too. Wouldn't that be a problem? But the point is, they're going to be pressing home Roman law and he's got to uphold Roman law no matter how amiable he's going to be. And so he's going to be easy to get along with, at least it looks like in terms of, uh, of history. Uh, and uh, so that's the point. Secondly, Gallio was such an influential man if they could get him to rule against Christianity, it would have an impact across the empire. Think of his influence. First of all, he was the proconsul of Achaia. Uh, and Achaia had become a provincial province in 44, just seven years before. It had been one before and it lost that. But a provincial province, that's got enormous influence. So this is a very influential office. Second, he was the son of the very famous rhetorician Seneca the Elder. <clears throat> this would give him influence in Rome. It certainly gave him status. Third, he was the older brother of Lucius Aeneas Seneca, or some people call him Seneca the Younger, a very famous Stoic philosopher who, guess what? He was the tutor of Nero and uh, was also kind of like a, a prime minister. Gallio's younger brother constantly had the ear of Nero. And so these Jews are thinking, this would be tremendous. If we could get this guy to make a declaration against Christianity, he's so influential, he's got so many connections, this will have an impact worldwide. So it's a very strategic move on the part of the Jews. <clears throat> Third, 
He was very loyal to Rome and would be more likely to uphold Roman law than to be self-serving. And this is part of the miracle of what God gets him to do because really this would have been helpful for the Jews. He was a bureaucrat who needed to climb the corporate ladder, and yes, he could pull strings, but bureaucrats typically have to follow the law to the letter, to the T. And then finally, they had to move quickly since proconsuls usually only ruled in Corinth for one year. They only had one year's time to deal with this. There were a couple of situations that were two years, but it's almost certain he only was there for one year. We've got some archaeological evidence that pinpoints when he was uh, the proconsul. And so this event occurs sometime between the spring of AD 51 and the autumn of AD 52 when Paul left uh, the city. And I think it's got to be much earlier based on uh, uh, verse 18 that Paul still remains a good while after that. Roman numeral three, what were the Jews trying to accomplish? And we've already hinted at this, uh, of course, but look at verse 13. Saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now this verse highlights two charges that could have brought the death penalty were such serious breaches of Roman law that uh, they were almost certain, Gallio's got to look at this. He's got to deal with this. First charge can be seen in the phrase, this fellow persuades men. Now, the word for persuades in the Greek is always a negative uh, connotation and implies an undermining and illegal persuasion or proselytism, if you will. Now, proselytism was not illegal. They could proselytize any pagan that they wanted to proselytize, but it was always illegal to proselytize uh, Roman citizens. Now, they don't say he was a Roman citizen, but if they're claiming that he's proselytizing contrary to the law, then that's implied. No other proselytism would be contrary to the law. Second charge was that he was getting them to worship God contrary to the law. Now, fortunately, Sosthenes did not mention that it was Roman law that he was talking about, but he clearly had Roman law in mind. Rome could care less what they were doing, they gave freedom of religion so long as you submitted to Rome to get a permit. You could, you could believe whatever you wanted to believe. It was worshiping God contrary to Roman law that would have gotten Paul in trouble. It was illegal for any religion to worship without getting the proper permits. And so what many scholars have said is that what the Jews are trying to do is to get Gallio to make a clear-cut declaration that Christianity is a religio uh, illicita, an unlicensed religion, and then they would de definitely be in trouble. That's the issue. Now, there's a third thing that's implied in this accusation. They were implying that the synagogue did indeed worship God according to the law. I mean, if they're accusing him of not doing it according to the law, they're saying we are worshiping according to the law. So what they're doing is they're distinguishing Judaism as a religio licita, a licensed religion, from Christianity, an unlicensed uh, religion. And contrary to the views of some modern critics, there have been some who have questioned whether uh, there even was this. Uh, I've got several books that document this extensively, that Rome always licensed religions. And so if it could be proved that Paul was forming an entirely new religion, they could get Paul in trouble. Now, how would they prove that? They probably thought it was fairly easy. First of all, they could demonstrate that Paul and all of the other Christians had been kicked out of the synagogue, and they were. We saw that earlier in the chapter. Uh, second, they could prove that the church was meeting now in Justice's house. There was quite a crowd there, and they had not gotten a permit. That would be pretty easy to prove. 
And this is similar to the snitching that goes on uh, by the TSPM, the three self-patriotic uh, movement uh, church leaders, uh, when they find out that there are some people who are meeting with an underground church. Oh, they immediately run to the government and say, hey, you need to get on top of these people. Uh, I think a lot of those leaders were jealous of the enormous growth within the, uh, the uh, underground church in China. And so they went to the government, and the civil government there, there is just scared to death of any unauthorized meetings, no matter how small, just as upset as Rome was. Both countries, if you read the literature, both countries say the reason they didn't want any unauthorized, unlicensed meetings to be happening is people might be fomenting trouble to try to overthrow the government. That's what's going through their minds. <clears throat> And so they consider it a threat. So they were the first century TSPM. You could just think of the Ju Judaism as being TSPM. Point C, Judaism had a well-established status of protection by Rome, so they were not worried about themselves. They should have been, but they were not worried about themselves. Uh, the reason I say they should have been is even TSPM, licensed, you know, state-approved pastors who have recently gotten converted in, in China, ooh, are they in trouble? Uh, they're, they're, they need to be worried uh, because you've got to follow the, the party line when you have become state approved. Now, in, in Judaism, there had already been numerous times when local officials had already been forced against their will to side with the Jews on disputes because of their favored status that they had in the emperor, empire. Uh, Schurer, in his History of the Jewish People, cites several examples of these Roman decrees uh, protecting Jews and Jewish practices. So there were perks to being licensed, and the Jews, they were not beyond pushing and pushing and pushing those favors and those perks that had been given to them. Now, I believe point D was the main goal that they had in mind. If they could get Gallio to rule against Christianity, it would set a precedent throughout the empire. Christians could no longer ride on the coattails of Judaism, where the Roman officials thought, well, we don't need to persecute Christians. Jews are allowed. They're licensed. And uh, it was not until the Jews said, no, they have nothing to do with us. You know, they're not Jews. You need to go after them that Christians began to be more and more persecuted. Now, God has such a sense of humor, and this attempt backfires so badly that the synagogue is set back on its haunches and gives Paul a continued period of freedom to preach. Verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while. Now let's read verses 14 through 17, and then I'll comment on that phrase by phrase. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. First thing that I want to point out is that Gallio was being uncharacteristically unfriendly. This was such a shocker. In fact, some people have said Luke is wrong because all of the contemporaries of Gallio say that he is just such an easy-to-get-along-with person, not easily ruffled, a sweet disposition, He's just fun to be around. He's just an all-around, extraordinarily nice and pleasant guy. And you read all the literature. It all says that on Gallio. But I think there is an explanation, and we've got a little hint from a letter that was sent by his younger brother, Seneca. In that letter, it says that Gallio got sick 
uh, got a fever from which he never recovered when he went for his one-year stay in Corinth. And he was never the same man again. He, he always felt miserable. And so I think what's going on here is that he's become cranky because of his, his sickness. He's gotten grumpy. Now, it may be that uh, there's other reasons, but it definitely meshes together with the extra-biblical data that we have. It may be he's just uh, anti-Semitic and he wants to do something. He's racially prejudiced or something. Uh, it may be he sees through their hypocrisy and he doesn't want anything to do with the ruse. I really think, though, it's his sickness that makes him grumpy. But my point is, God is e- even in control over people's grumpiness. Okay? And he uses it for the advancement of his purposes. This was so uncharacteristic of Gallio. Okay, look at verse 14. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said, Gallio just cuts off Paul. He's not interested in hearing anything more. He's not interested in letting Paul make his defense. And let me tell you something. Roman citizens had the right to make a defense. Uh, If this was a criminal case, a proconsul could never brush them off like that. He would have to hear the case. And if you look at the verse carefully, you'll see Gallio admits that. He says, if it was wrongdoing, if it was a, uh, an evil crime that you're talking about, yeah, I'd have to bear with you guys. He didn't look like he's enjoying it very much, but I would have to. He'd be forced to deal with it. But the first sentence that comes out of their mouth, Gallio knows immediately, oh, this is a religious issue, which means it's a corporation issue, and corporations do not have the rights of citizens, such as the right of self-defense, uh, right to self uh, cross-examination, etc., So as soon as Gallio knows what the issue is, and he didn't want to hear this case, uh, he just puts them out. Corporations are totally subject to the state's whim. They cannot press for rights like a private citizen would. And the same is true today. Once churches apply for corporate status, they lose their inalienable rights. Uh, Let me cite a couple of court cases to that effect. In Paul v. Virginia, the court said, Corporations are not citizens. The term citizen applies only to natural persons, not to artificial persons created by the legislature. And that explains why they said, hey, you can't apply for constitutional protections. You can't apply for these Bill of Rights. They don't apply to corporations. Uh, There's a similar case in the slaughterhouse cases. Uh, You can see the same reasoning in some of the law textbooks. Uh, Len Young Smith and G. Gale Robertson in Smith and Robertson's Business Law, page 787, says a corporation is not considered as a person within that clause of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution which protects a person against self-incrimination. Churches need to wake up to the fact their liberties have been stolen. You know, when it comes to corporations, actually it's not been stolen, they've given them away. They are giving up far more than they are gaining by becoming incorporated. Now, the biggest setback to the Jews was the second half of verse 14. Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. Now, he's here explicitly saying Paul has not done anything wrong and Paul has not engaged in a crime. So the exact opposite of what the Jews wanted to happen is happening now. Here's this influential man that has set a precedent that could have influence across the empire. This is huge in favor of Paul. This is great. And it seems that Gallio recognizes the insincerity of the Jews. He knows across the empire there's various religions that have 
conflict and rivalry amongst the sects within them. So he's familiar with that. He, he just assumes, okay, this is a conflict within Judaism. He has no love for the Jews, a fact confirmed by the state, I should bear with you, uh, that we just read. If Sosthenes, though, had been more careful in the way in which he had brought his charges, he could have forced Gallio's hand. And God kept him from being able to do this. Uh, God makes sure Gallio doesn't give him any more time to be able to do anything. He's heard enough. But here's the four things that might have changed the outcome of the trial. First, if Sosthenes had said, Paul is converting Roman citizens... Paul immediately would have been in deep trouble uh, with men. Instead, he says he's converting men. Why he says that instead of saying he's converting Roman citizens? Who knows why? But that would have been an immediate thing that would have made Gallio have to hear this court case. I think God was just making Sosthenes a little bit dull in his thinking. He just wasn't getting his words out quite right. Now, God knows how to control even uh, court situations for his glory. Second, if the emperor had not ruled against Jews in Rome in 49 AD, that's verse 2 that we read, Gallio might have been forced to show them a little bit more favor because ordinarily the Romans showed the Jews a great deal of favor. But what the emperor's action did was it opened the door for a little bit of anti-Semitism perhaps to uh, be at play here. He knows he's not going to get in trouble with the emperor. Ah, the emperor's upset and mad at the Jews too. He's not going to touch me on this thing. And so it gives him a lot more wiggle room. Third, if Sosthenes had mentioned that the church was an ecclesia, that's the Greek word for church, ecclesia, it would have gone bad for Paul because in the uh, ancient uh, world, this was a code word that meant any organization that bypassed Roman law altogether by trying its own cases, okay? And ecclesia was always a polis, almost like a nation. Now, Jews were given that privilege to a limited degree, not entirely. They still had to get permission for a number of things. But if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes it very clear a Christian may never go to a pagan court to settle anything with a brother. May never go. What's he saying there? He's saying the church is its own court. It's its own ecclesia. It can bypass the courts of the state. Now, that is huge. And if he had brought that accusation up, boy, just like that, they would have been all over that. They would have been very nervous. And then finally, the term euangelion, from which we get the word evangelism, was a very controversial term in Rome because it was used by the Romans over and over again to declare the victory of one nation over another nation. And so there are some political things here that could have made him nervous. But in God's providence, Sosthenes botches his job of bringing charges. Gallio isn't interested. And the moment he gets one sentence out of his mouth, Gallio says, I've heard enough, get out of here, you know, and he makes sure that they're out of there. God is sovereign over even the hearts of men. Verse 15 is especially interesting. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. Well, the Jews would not have brought something to Gallio over their own laws. They already had permission to judge over their own laws. That was not the issue there. They were trying to charge him over Roman law. But what is strange about this is even if it had been a question over their own laws, 
if Sosthenes, I mean, if Gallio was interested, he could have intervened. He had the full authority to be able to intervene, but he just was not interested in their agenda. And again, what's unusual, as I mentioned, the Roman officials on several occasions felt quite comfortable interfering in the internal affairs of Judaism, even diverting money to pagan uses. It's not that he could not, it's that he did not want to. And the same is true today. The reason churches are left alone by the state for the most part is not that the state does not have the right to intervene. It is just that in most circumstances they're not interested. But let no one fool you. At a whim, the government, the civil government, can step in and interfere in the church affairs of any corporation. Any corporation. This has been true since the time that Rome invented corporations and it continues to be true throughout the West. Now, let me give you a, a Canadian example, and then I'll give you a couple of uh, U.S. examples. If you go to the website of the Attorney General of Canada, you'll find the laws that govern charities and churches. Pretty boring stuff. But in Section 6.5, it says, Religious organizations should consider certain issues carefully before incorporating. Governing law. If a religious organization becomes incorporated... Its ecclesiastical, canon, or church laws, rules, or regulations may be subject to the Corporations Act. This means that if any ecclesiastical, canon, or church law, rule, or regulations conflicts with the Corporation Act, the organization, once incorporated, must comply with the Corporations Act and will no longer be able to use that law, rule, or regulation in administering its affairs. Now, it's simply staying that state law, including homosexual laws that are a big hot issue up in Canada, state law trumps church law all the time if you're incorporated. doesn't if you're not incorporated. If you're incorporated, it trumps uh, church law. Now, our own denomination says the same thing, thankfully not over a big issue like homosexuality, but the principle is the same. They set out what they consider to be a church law regarding voting. But they say on this law concerning voting, if you're a corporation, then you have to follow. And in fact, let me go ahead and quote them. They say, you can't follow the church law. You, quote, must act in accord with applicable civil laws. Now, thankfully, our denomination, the PCA, allows local churches to be unincorporated. Otherwise, I would not be in this denomination any longer, but they allow local churches to be unincorporated, and if you remain unincorporated, none of the BCO provisions relating to corporations apply to the local congregation. There's a lot of unincorporated churches uh, in the PCA. Now, I mention this, not just to badmouth, but to say this problem of reform is not just pointing the fingers out there. Our own denomination needs reform on this very issue. Getting incorporated places the church directly under the jurisdiction of the state and makes it a state church. De facto, it makes it a state church. Several court cases could be cited. Let me give you the Matthews versus Adams case of 1988. The court said appellants appeal on the basis that the circuit court had no authority over them because they are a recognized religious organization, a church. On first reflection, they appeared to be correct because they're looking at the Constitution. And they appear, okay, yeah, we have to be jurisdictional separation of church and state. But he goes on, he says, on first reflection, they appeared to be correct 
But upon closer study of the complaint and the judgment, we are of the opinion that this is not an improper interference by the government into the church or ecclesiastical matter. Now, here comes the reasoning, and I want you to listen to this closely. The court said, when the members of the church decided to incorporate their body under the laws of the state of Florida, they submitted themselves to the jurisdiction of the state court in all matters of a corporate nature. Now, when you start looking at all matters of a corporate nature in that court case, you begin to realize, man, this covers just about everything that the church does. The corporate laws are pretty broad. It doesn't tell you what you have to believe in doctrine. That's about the only thing that's accepted, okay, that's outside of the scope of that. So we're talking about jurisdiction here. Does the state have jurisdiction over the church government? And we have to say no. And the founding fathers of America to a man would say no. Whether they were deists or orthodox Christians, they would have said no. The state cannot have jurisdiction. There is a jurisdictional separation between those two side-by-side separate governments. Now, let me read you a little dialogue that went on between Everett Sullivan and the judge who was trying his case here in Nebraska. And those of you who have been around a long time, you know about this, and I've mentioned this. But for those of you who are newer, I think you need to, to realize even there's even a couple of families in this congregation who have suffered persecution as a result of this whole issue. Now, I'm getting this from Michael Gilstrap's essay in Christianity and Civilization, Volume 3. At one point, the judge leaned over his bench and remarked to Reverend Sullivan, I don't understand why you won't submit your school to licensure. Don't you realize that everything in your church is licensed from the building to the hymn books? Reverend Sullivan replied, what do you mean? Judge answered, isn't the Faith Baptist Church incorporated? Well, yes, Sullivan answered. As a corporation, said the judge, every possession of Faith Baptist Church is licensed by the state of Nebraska. We control it all, and that is the reason we can require you to submit your school to licensure. Now, if you just think that's an odd remark by an odd judge, you know, who's being tyrannical. No, these could be multiplied many times. You need to read In Caesar's Grip by Peter Kershaw, where numerous cases are cited, where the law itself is studied, the history of corporations, and there's other books that deal with this, but history of corporations going all the way back to the Romans. Wine Corporation was illegal in every state of the Union until this past century. And I think... I mentioned that it's, I think it's still illegal in Virginia, but I don't know what the outcome of that. There was a Baptist church there that sued the government for the right to get incorporated, which I just think is bizarre. Why in the world would you want to do that? Now, in the early church, Christians were prepared to die rather than affirm Caesar's lordship over the church and be licensed by the state. Now, as to themselves as individuals, they say, sure, I obey the government. Caesar's lord over me individually. He's not lord over my religion. He's not Lord over my faith. That is what they were standing up for. And actually, there were a number of Jewish synagogues uh, that weren't Christian, Jewish synagogues, who stood on this principle as well. And they said, no way, I don't care if the majority of Jewish synagogues are doing this. This is an issue of jurisdiction, and they refused. One law textbook says, a corporation derives its existence and all of its powers from the state and therefore has only such powers as the state has conferred upon it. This has always been true from the very time that corporations were invented by the Romans. Part of the fundamentals of this church is we will never get licensed, we will never get incorporated by the state because it violates numerous scriptures. 
It does. It's just so clear. By the way, when Christ says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, what he was doing is he was rebuking the Jewish authorities on at least two issues, one of which was they'd already sold the farm by giving Rome total jurisdiction when they got incorporated. And so they had no basis for complaint against the taxation of Caesar. This was at least in part a slap against their licensure and their incorporated status uh, in the first century. And so these accusers of Paul can suggest that Rome do something, but they have no rights to demand that the state do anything. They are subject to the whims of the state's goodwill. And it looks like <laughs> there's not a whole lot of goodwill right now going on in Rome or in Corinth that they're experiencing. So even though there isn't much of anything that Gallio can do against them as a corporation, as individuals, they are personally at risk. So verse 16 says, and he drove them from the judgment seat. Simon Kistemacher, uh, in his commentary, says, he had to rid his court of the Jews who refused to leave. Thus he had to order his lictors, use your rods and clear the court. Now, it was also evidenced in the Greek mistreatment of Sosthenes. Verse 17 says, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Now, I think what's going on here is they saw Gallio doesn't seem like he's very impressed with Jews and uh, he's beating them. I think we can get away with a little bit of anti-Semitism as well. So they wail into Sosthenes and uh, give him a what for. The last sentence in verse 17 says, And Gallio took no notice of these things. Now, because it was it, uh, the beating took place in front of the judgment seat, he had to have noticed it in terms of seeing it, but what it means is he didn't do anything about it. He didn't notice it in the sense of taking care of it, doing anything about the, beat, uh, the beating. And why did the Greeks beat Sosthenes? Well, by this time, there was growing resentment against the Jews throughout the empire. They had gotten into many places of influence. They become financially wealthy. They were very successful. And what does success breed many times? It breeds envy. And it breeds resentment. Resentment's where you want to, you know, bring down the person that you're envious about. Uh, you know, destroy, uh, destroy them. They had gotten favors that no other nation had, such as the right to try people in any city of the world, as if they were back in Israel. Now, the pagans didn't like the fact that Jews were able to tax their citizens, and they considered the tithe a tax, but they were able to tax their citizens anywhere in the world and, you know, bring in their money into the temple. They said, that's just not right. Unlike other countries, Jews were exempt from military service. That really brought a lot of grief into the minds of some people. Unlike other countries who had to worship or at least give a pinch of incense to Caesar and the imperial cult, Jews were completely exempted from that. They did not have to do that, and so it made... The Gentiles, very jealous of the Jews. So they took it out on Sosthenes. It's a frustration being vented. And as I've mentioned before, the emperor himself was so upset with the Jews that he expelled them from Rome in A.D. 49. Now, they still had religio licita, but it didn't take much for this to horribly backfire uh, on the Jews and for Sosthenes, who's the new replacement. Remember, the old ruler of the synagogue got converted, but this new replacement of the synagogue... Uh, to receive a savage beating. Now, last week we saw God had promised Paul, even though there's a lot of hostility, you're not going to be touched. You're not going to be hurt. Here's how God shows how he did it. Uh, he did it by controlling the hearts of even a pagan bureaucrat, sending a spirit of confusion perhaps into this Sosthenes. By the way, we ought to pray for that, that confusion. You know, when 
attorneys are defending pornographers, pray that they'd be so confused they'd look like idiots in front of the court, you know. Or when, uh, uh, when prosecuting attorneys are, are trying to prosecute uh, those who, you know, are preaching against homosexuality or whatever, we can pray that God would bring a spirit of dumbness to their minds and open up the hearts of the judge so that he would judge righteously. Now let me end with some further quick applications that we can make from this information. First, we can say we should put no confidence in princes. We should not render to Caesar anything except for what Scripture says we ought to render to Caesar. Psalm 118 verse 9 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. This passage illustrates princes will let you down. It is better to put your trust in the Lord than in IRS recognition. It is better to put your trust in the Lord than to receive gobs of money, you know, from the federal government for your programs. I'm just shocked at how much money the federal government gives out. Did you realize in the short time I have been pastor of this church, I have received two offers from the federal government each time for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then they sent another letter saying, how come you haven't taken this money? And so I wrote a rebuke back to them that this is none of the federal government's business to be giving money. This is, this is not something I'm anyway interested in being a part of. And yet how many churches in Omaha have taken this kind of money and further enslaved themselves to the church? It just doesn't make any sense to me that people would do this. Second, if our country issues martial law and starts taking away religious liberties unless we get a license... I hope that you will follow the example of the underground church in China rather than of the TSPM church in that same country. Unfortunately, I think what most, unless there's revival, what most Christians will do is the same thing Christians did under Nazi Germany, under Hitler. They'll just be quiet. They won't like it, but they won't say a thing. They will not buck uh, what the, the government is doing. Paul's stance is a stance of faith rather than of comfort. His disobedience of Roman ungodly law was a faith issue. Verse 13 says, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And it was contrary to the law. You can see that especially it gets worse and worse through the book of Acts and then later on. It was contrary to the law. So, thankfully, here in America, we still have a great deal of liberties... Uh, and we need to continue to hold on to them. But it's eroding fast. A third application is that Christians should be blameless of real crimes. Verse 14 says, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. We should never buck the government on any issue that is legitimately the government's. The only thing the government should be able to throw at us is the Bible. You know, when we're in court, say, oh, are these... People, they're following the Bible instead of following you. Yeah, that's the only thing they should be able to throw at you. Fourth application is that the church should keep jurisdictions clearly in mind. Now, it's so ironic that the words of verse 15 are coming from the mouth of a Roman magistrate. Now, other Romans, they didn't take this attitude at all. But verse 15 says, But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. Oh, that all magistrates would have that kind of an enlightened attitude. Look to it yourselves. Now, Rome did not have a doctrine like we do of three separate governments, family, church, and state, each having their own unique uh, jurisdiction. What they had is everything in life, 
And if they could even put it, even the gods would be under Caesar. But everything in life was under Caesar, under the government. Whereas in our system, we have separate governments, family, church, and state, all directly under God, not mediated through any man. And we need to keep those jurisdictions separate. The state may not take ever any things that are under a family's jurisdiction, such as education, discipline, marriage, how many children you can have. You know, in China they say you can only have one child. That is none of the government's business. They have no jurisdiction. They have no right to bind your conscience on that. It is none of the church's business. Those are separate jurisdictions. Now, likewise, the family and the church may not take into its own power the jurisdiction of avenging with the sword. That's the state's jurisdiction. Now, self-protection, protecting your family against attack from robbers, yeah, that's fine. But we cannot take vengeance into our own hands. America was founded on this idea of separated governments, separated powers, limited powers, delegated powers, enumerated powers. And what we believe as a church is that the family retains to itself all powers not explicitly given by God to the church or to the, to the, to the state. Now, this means all three governments in America are in desperate need of reformation, family, church, and state. Families have abdicated their responsibilities to educate their children. And what have they done? They've sent their children off to the pagans to be educated, off to the government schools. That is a destructive blow to liberty and to freedoms. It's going to destroy the next generation. But you know what? The church has abdicated its responsibilities to preach the whole counsel of God. Why? Because they're afraid they might lose their tax-exempt status if they preach about certain controversial topics. If they apply the word a little bit too specifically, they might get into trouble. Now, of course, the state and federal governments, they've become huge, bloated Buddhas who are taking everything uh, into their net. Uh, they want everybody to come onto their plantation, their slave plantation. Over 80% of the federal government's budget is grossly unconstitutional. The lowest figure I've seen is 68%. But I think it's way over 80%. It's definitely unbiblical. Definitely unbiblical. We are in desperate need for reform. What we need is magistrates who will say like Gallio, it's none of my business. Who will say, yeah, you've had a tornado. I'm sorry, I'll pray for you. But it's none of my business to be sending federal aid to help you out. Uh, we need states who will say, it's none of my business to incorporate churches. It's none of my business as a magistrate, you know, to be educating kids or to be uh, setting, uh, you know, minimum wage laws or anything along uh, those lines. We desperately need uh, some magistrates who will bring reform into that, uh, into that area. In fact, I would just be absolutely delighted. I would send a letter of congratulation if... Uh, the people in Congress would get literal lictors with literal sticks and beat people out of there, the special interest groups, out of that building. I mean, it, they are dragging our country down. It would be a hallelujah day for me, you know, and it would be a hallelujah day if they would eradicate 80% of what they are involved in. We don't need them. We need reformers in all three essential areas of government. Please don't vote pragmatically. We need reformers in Congress, not compromisers. Now, of course, we can't blame the state entirely. The state grows because citizens don't have self-control. I mean, it's the citizens' fault in large part. 
uh, and Christians, they're begging the government to give this and to give that. It just nauseates me. We're always asking the state to be a nanny state, and it's certainly true of the church. Steve Nestor, IRS senior revenue officer, not only wrote a glowing re- review of um, uh, Peter Kershaw's book, he said this is a completely accurate book, and uh, he wrote a glowing review of it, but he went on to marvel that any church would ever apply for licensing and incorporation. Let me quote him. He said, I'm not the only IRS employee who's wondered why churches go to the government and seek permission to be exempted from a tax they didn't know to begin with and to seek a tax-deductible status that they've always had anyway. Many of us have marveled at how church leaders want to be regulated and controlled by an agency of government that most Americans have prayed would just get out of their lives. <laughs> Churches are in an amazingly unique position, but they don't seem to know or appreciate the implications of what it would mean to be free of government control. Now, how sad that it takes an IRS agent to rebuke the church and be standing up for these churches' liberties. It's strange. Our church's attorney worked for years in a higher echelons of the IRS, and I gave him this book and said, this is where we're coming from. I want your review. He came back. He says, terrific. I think it's a great book. He agreed with it, and he told me he thought it was the height of stupidity for churches to apply for this special status. But you know what? Americans have developed a slave mentality, and I have seen pastors in this city who have gone to the governor asking for money for their buildings. I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? In fact, I contradicted. I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. I contradicted them and I told the governor, don't listen to these people. We need less of the state, not more of the state. We don't want to be enslaved in this kind of way. But some of these pastors have been receiving federal funds for their programs. They're constantly enslaving themselves. We've got to stop being like that wilderness generation of Israelites who had a slave mentality, who could not understand the importance of liberty, and we're not willing to take the risks of liberty. Now, the last application is obvious. We as a church should never get incorporated. And I would sooner that we as a church became an underground church than to get incorporated. The churches in China, they understand this issue of licensure. They know the controls that come with being licensed. So why do American pastors do this? And I've asked numerous American pastors, you've already got tax-exempt status. Why are you applying like this? Why are you getting incorporated? Well, our attorneys think we really need to do this. And I said, read Peter Kurt. Well, I, I don't know. I can't make up my mind on this. We've got to just trust our attorneys. We need to pray. <laughs> we need to pray that our country will not become another China. Pray for the liberty that Paul suffered and fought for. Pray for the liberties that our founding fathers suffered and fought for. Let's stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and let's ourselves be agents of reform for America. Amen. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the warnings of Your Word. We thank You that Your Word shows the evil results that flow from violating Your laws. We thank You, Father, that uh, we do not need to Uh, just uh, look to the testimony of man, but that Your Word itself gives us all of the information that we need for life and for godliness. Help us to follow it. Help us to believe it. And Father, I pray for Your forgiveness of the church of Jesus Christ in this nation and in many other countries, actually, that have been seeking for approval and licensure from the state and have been 
uh, getting incorporated. And I pray, Father, that You would open the eyes of people all across this nation and that there would be a massive undoing of the damage that has been done so far. Please, Father, bring reformation to family, church, and state. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.